Hey there, Kubrick fans. If you like what you hear during this episode, be sure to visit our website at thekubrickseries.com for more episodes and uncut interviews from the series. And you can also consider making a one-time or recurring monthly donation in any amount of your choosing if you'd like to support our podcast. That's thekubrickseries.com. Thank you. Over the course of 13 feature films, he examined a diverse range of topics and themes, from the glories and dangers of technology... I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. ...to the moral conflicts inherent in war. Whose side do you want, son? Our side, sir. How about getting with the program? He investigated the duality of man with unblinking honesty... <laughs> ...with a fierce intelligence... He embraced the ambiguous, revealing deeper layers of truth with every viewing of his work. You've always been the caretaker. His films were of their time, ahead of their time, and timeless. I'm not saying we wouldn't get our hair mussed, but I do say no more than 10 to 20 million killed. Tops! In this series, we will examine the works of Stanley Kubrick, works that will continue to challenge, fascinate, and exhilarate audiences for as long as there are movies. This is the Kubrick series. Episode 2, The Ultimate Trip. And all of a sudden, in 1968, this incredible visual display came out, 2001, and everyone was just you know, the jaws dropped. Saw 2001 when it came out. The reaction I had was the movie screen was simply made bigger. It just expanded the art form. 2001 is a milestone in so many ways. You know, it does feel like that's a movie that nobody can really advance past. Uh, it's the, um, uh, the greatest uh, and most boring masterpiece of the... Uh, 20th century in uh, science fiction cinema. The greatest and most boring? Is that what you said? Yeah, at the same time. <laughs> Stop, will you? Stop, Dave. Will you stop, Dave? Perhaps the origins of Stanley Kubrick's 2001 are rooted in the conclusion of his previous film, Dr. Strangelove. One aspect of the thematic motivation behind making this film is absent from the film itself. <laughs> Author of the BFI Classics Analysis of 2001, Peter Kramer. You know that Kubrick actually embarked on this project to counter the pessimism not only of the film of the Strangelove, but of his own belief. His own conviction was that humanity was unlikely to survive the next two or three decades. Mm. He, he, was, he made that statement in various interviews, and my sense is that 2001 is a response to this. If you're convinced that humanity will destroy itself on Earth, you have to look away from Earth to something non-human to, to come up with an alternative future. Now, for some people, that would have been God in the heavens. Mm -hmm. It would have been a religious thing. For Kubrick, it was something more scientific, uh, namely extraterrestrials, um, that might, through their presence, or through their discovery, through their interference, prevent humanity from self-destroying. Kubrick became interested in exploring the concept of extraterrestrial life as he neared the conclusion of Dr. Strangelove. Well, I became interested in the idea that <clears throat> the universe uh, was full of intelligent civilizations, which is the current scientific belief. Scientists know now that there are about a hundred billion stars in our galaxy, 
and about 100 billion galaxies in the visible universe. Point is that there are so many stars in the universe that the likelihood of life evolving around them, even if it were possibilities of one in a million, there would be hundreds of millions of worlds in the universe. The task ahead would be daunting, as Kubrick set out to expand the boundaries of the much maligned sci-fi film genre. Kubrick's longtime assistant, Tony Fruin. Back in the, um, in the 1960s, I mean, science fiction in the cinema um, was, to use an expression of Dizzy Gillespie's, um, lower than whale shit. Mm. I mean, it, science fiction was Mar Mars attacks, um, Saturday morning pictures for kids, Flash Gordon, all that sort of nonsense. Right. Prior to the 60s, I mean, it, it, it didn't have a good uh, genealogy in, in the cinema, um, with uh, perhaps two, two or three exceptions. Now, here was a film that was exploring the possibility of extraterrestrial life, you know. So he, he felt that he needed to show that these were legitimate scientific concerns mm -hmm. and that they weren't just nonsense. Author Peter Kramer. 2001 is a unique experience in his career because this this was a novel, a collaboration with Arthur C. Clarke that was taking place at the same time the film was coming together. Could you give me a sense of the, the origins of this project and his collaboration with, with Clarke? Can I just tell you, hot off the press, I'd just been in the archive a couple of weeks ago and I found out that Kubrick's original plan for Dr. Strangelove was to get an author of a novel to write a new story. Hmm. Peter Bryant, or Peter George, he operated under two names, who wrote a, a thriller called Red Alert, in, in, which also was published under the, the, the title Two Hours to Doom, was hired by Kubrick not to adapt his novel Red Alert, but he was hired by Kubrick to write a new novel huh. along similar lines, but fresh, a fresh story. And only after several months did Kubrick decide uh, that he didn't want to do that, but he wanted to return to the novel that Peter Bryant or Peter George was famous for, namely Red Alert, except he wanted to give it a comical twist. What Kubrick did with Clark, he'd already planned to do for Dr. Strangelove. He huh. wanted to get an author to, to, who had written a novel he was impressed by to write a new story that they would develop together, and then that story would be the basis of a screenplay and of a new novel that would be published in conjunction with the film. So he already had that idea for Dr. Strangelove, but then he abandoned it and went back to the idea of adapting the novel Red Alert by Peter Bryan, uh, except he gave it a comic twist. So I think this idea he then returned to when he came to a, this project that was about extraterrestrials and contact with them and the impact that would have and space travel. He was close to Roger Karras at... Um, who was doing the publicity for Dr. Strangelove um, for Columbia. And uh, Roger Carras, in turn, was friends with Arthur C. Clarke. So when Kubrick was revealing to Roger Carras, who, who he had become friendly with, that he was now working on this space travel extraterrestrial contact story, Carras uh, said, well, why don't you write to the best man in the field? My mm. friend Arthur C. Clarke was living in Sri Lanka at the time. Uh, and that's what Kubrick did. The historic first meeting between acclaimed science fiction writer Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick took place on April 23, 1964, at the New York hotspot Trader Vic's. In terms of intellectual stimulation and the ability to exhaust every possibility with an endless stream of questions and speculations, Kubrick had found a kindred spirit in Clarke. Following another meeting, the two agreed to collaborate on the project. Their deal included the purchase of seven Clark stories, chief among them a short story titled The Sentinel, which supposed the existence of extraterrestrial life prior to the dawn of man, and the presence of a jeweled pyramid they left behind to impart wisdom upon the planet's eventual inhabitants. 
The collaboration would challenge both men as neither had before experienced, both as artists and as intellectual thinkers. But by the end of that year, Clark had produced a manuscript, which would act as the basis for the film's screenplay and an eventual novel Clark would complete in conjunction with the film's release. The process, however, was far from over. In fact, the story would continue to evolve over the course of the next three years, as Kubrick challenged Clark to consider ever more meticulous and ambitious narrative and thematic directions. The novel was eventually unleashed upon the world in July of 68, three months after the film's opening. Many looked to the novel to answer the mysteries and ambiguities of the film, which was intentionally structured as a more vague, sensory work. But even coupled with Clark's novel, so much of Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey remains indefinable and maddeningly, yet magically, elusive. Millions of years ago, before the human race existed, an adventure began. An adventure that ultimately leads man to confront his own destiny in an odyssey of exploration. Seven One is about an alien consciousness that comes down to Earth. It had come down to Earth many, many years ago. Film analyst Dean Treadway. Finding only the apes, they decided to leave a bit of themselves behind to help teach the apes how to better cope with life. A shrieking monolith, deliberately buried by an alien intelligence, starts man on a mission half a billion miles into space. Director of 2010, the year we make contact, Peter Himes. When I made 2010, I, I remember asking Arthur Clarke, what's just between you and me? I mean, I'm like, what the hell is the monolith? <laughs> and he said, it's the cosmic equivalent of a Swiss Army knife. Film analyst, Barry Krush. Now, I think in one of the early versions of that film, they were going to do a, a, I think it was a glass pyramid. And so they changed it from this glass pyramid to this monolith. So when they make a change like that, you have to ask yourself, okay, why does it look like this instead of like a glass pyramid? And there's a lot of possibilities. Uh, one, you could say it's like a brick, like a brick in the wall. Or the fact that it's black is something that absorbs light. You can, you can say that it's uh, a domino, right? Something that, when it's pushed, leads to some other thing. All these things come into play. You could call it a door. Uh, William Blake had a great line, if the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear to man as it is infinite. Mm -hmm. So if you look on it as a door, then it's a doorway for Bowman to go from, from one thing to another. You could also call it a piece of the puzzle, right? Uh -huh. A very simple piece. So Kubrick's films are filled with all these little details, and you, you sort of have to put them together for yourself. To make it look like a puzzle piece is sort of an indication that, you know, this is a piece of the puzzle, and you're supposed to do something with it, which is use it and then put it together to get to some other thing. Author Peter Kramer. Because the monolith are not explained as being objects created by extraterrestrials. There's no scientific explanation given in the film. Right. Uh, there's certainly a spiritual or religious dimension as well. And that was there at the time when the film came out. People writing to letters often talked about uh, um, the film as being not only about God, but in a sense almost a revelation of God's presence in the world or in human history. But you didn't have to be religious. You couldn't be more broadly speaking spiritual about it. That there's a sense that, that humanity is part of higher power, that there are higher powers in the universe and that humanity will eventually develop some relationship to those higher powers and that, that we should show humility in relation to those higher powers and that we should uh, also have some hope towards what we might gain from these higher powers, which works both in terms of uh, a more scientific approach perhaps Mm -hmm. literally the belief in extraterrestrial life and contact with extraterrestrial life, but also in a spiritual or even religious way.
Whatever the interpretation of its origins, the monolith is clearly a mystical structure that forever changes those who come in contact with it. Once the apes happen upon it, it marks the next step in their evolution. Keeping in step with Kubrick's view of man as a self-destructive creature, the knowledge imparted to the apes is somehow perverted and creates a culture of violence from which man might never return. Film analyst Barry Krush. You can look at this whole opening section as sort of a twist on the Garden of Eden myth. The Garden of Eden, uh, man is basically in this beautiful forest and all of a sudden there's this tree of knowledge which he's really not supposed to take a bite out of, but he does it and he's cast out of the Garden of Eden. And you can look on this as sort of a 21st century view of that myth where the monolith is the apple. And once you touch the apple and gain the knowledge, you are then cast from paradise. Mm. <clears throat> Although, in that case, paradise was a desert. It, it wasn't that good to begin with. <laughs> and uh, it's about to get a whole lot worse. <laughs> uh, you know, you know the, the apes, you have to take a look at the apes, right? They're, they're by a body of water. And they've mm -hmm. received all this knowledge. Now, what could they have done with this knowledge? They could have taken that water and they could have irrigated their desert and they could have created a Garden of Eden. But instead, what they do with the knowledge is they take it and they pick up a bone and then they kill an animal. Mm. All right. So there's this violent tendency in man to sort of like go away from, you know, the long-term, more sustainable type of a world into the short-term, boom, let's get it, let's get violent, let's grab what we want and we'll suffer the consequences later type of attitude, which yeah. then leads to things like these nuclear weapons circling the Earth. In one of the most dazzling cuts in cinematic history, Moonwatcher, the central ape character played by actor Dan Richter, has discovered an animal bone and uses it to commit the Earth's first murder. Triumphant, Moonwatcher tosses the bone into the sky. As the bone gracefully ascends in mid-air flight, Kubrick cuts millions of years into the future as an armed satellite descends through space. Author of Stanley Kubrick, a narrative and stylistic analysis, Mario Falsetto. I think of it as a, not just an audacious cut, you know, in, in cinematic time, you know, three or four million years ahead, but it's a, it's a beautiful, elegant cut. His, his work is so elegant, people don't talk about that enough, you know. Professor of Film Studies at Clemson University, R. Barton Palmer. I guess that's that's got to be the greatest match cut in, yes. in the way that, that it crystallizes the entire development of the species of Homo sapiens and suggested that the origin of these two things is exactly the same kind of impulse. Um, mm -hmm. Impulse to violence, to control, and so on. The monolith makes its next appearance fairly early, once Kubrick moves to the space odyssey portion of his film as a team of scientists uncover the mysterious structure buried on the moon. When we first found it, we thought it might be an upcrop of magnetic rock, but all the geological evidence was against it. And not even a big nickel iron meteorite could produce a field as intense as this. So we decided to have a look. We thought it might be the upper part of some buried structure, so we excavated out on all sides, but unfortunately we didn't find anything else. And what's more, the evidence seems pretty conclusive that it hasn't been covered up by natural erosion or other forces. It seems to have been deliberately buried. Deliberately buried. Deliberately buried. <laughs> A deafening tone screams out from the monolith as the men approach. The fate of the men is unknown, as we cut 18 months later and are introduced to a new mission and a new crew. Good evening. Three weeks ago, the American spacecraft Discovery One left on its half-billion-mile voyage to Jupiter. This marked the first manned attempt to reach this distant planet. Earlier this afternoon, the World Tonight recorded an interview with the crew of Discovery at a distance of 80 million miles from Earth. 
The crew of Discovery One consists of five men and one of the latest generation of the HAL 9000 computers. Three of the five men were put aboard asleep, or to be more precise, in a state of hibernation. They were Dr. Charles Hunter, Dr. Jack Kimball, and Dr. Victor Kaminsky. We spoke with Mission Commander Dr. David Bowman and his deputy, Dr. Frank Poole. Well, good afternoon, gentlemen. How's everything going? Marvelous. Have no... <laughs> we have no complaints. Well, I'm very glad to hear that, and I'm sure that the entire world would join me in wishing you a safe and successful voyage. Thanks very much. Thank you. The sixth member of the Discovery crew was not concerned about the problems of hibernation, for he was the latest result in machine intelligence, the HAL 9000 computer, which can reproduce, though some experts still prefer to use the word mimic, most of the activities of the human brain, and with incalculably greater speed and reliability. We next spoke with the HAL 9000 computer, whom we learned one addresses as Hal. Good afternoon, Hal. How's everything going? Good afternoon, Mr. Amer. Everything is going extremely well. Later in the film, the HAL 9000 alerts Dr. Poole and Commander Bowman that an integral part of the ship called the AE-35 unit will fail within 72 hours. Based on this observation, they venture outside the craft to replace the unit, only to find there are no signs of defect. How would you account for this discrepancy between you and the Twin 9000? Well, I don't think there is any question about it. It can only be attributable to human error. This sort of thing has cropped up before, and it has always been due to human error. Troubled by Hal's misjudgment, Bowman and Poole conspire to dismantle him. They do this while encapsulated in a locked pod inside the spacecraft to avoid tipping off the prying computer. Little do they realize, Hal interprets their plan by reading their lips through the pod window. Inflamed by curiously human feelings of impending mortality, Hal springs into action, first by sending Dr. Poole to his death by hurtling him helplessly through space, then by flatlining the additional three crew members in hibernation. Boarding a pod and recovering Poole's body in mid-space, Bowman attempts to return to the spacecraft, but Hal will not allow him to enter. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Bowman successfully enters the spacecraft and methodically dismantles Hal's controls, as Hal pleads for his life. Dave, my mind is going. I can feel it. Author of Stanley Kubrick, A Narrative and Stylistic Analysis, Mario Falsetto. You know, how is Hal human? You know, he, he shows emotion and he makes mistakes. And this is how he understands. And uh, machines um, are not emotional. They're not. But he wants to be human. You know, he, he wants to emulate human beings. Film analyst Barry Krush. Definitely has a spiritual dimension to 2001. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, Hal, if you switch the letters around, you get A-L-H which you know is in Allah, and it's also the three primary consonants in the Hebrew word Elohim, which is the standard word for God in the Old Testament. But it's, oh. Hal is not, Hal is not A-L-H. Hal is that twisted up. And again, these, these connections are there. Uh, the question is, you know, what does it really mean? Uh, <laughs> and I don't know, but... I know that <laughs> I know that I know that Hal is definitely the demonic side of all of this. The yeah. red eye, right? Author of Stanley Kubrick, Seven Films Analyzed, Randy Rasmussen. One of the things Kubrick likes to deal in is reality versus illusion. There are a lot of things that you think you know what's going on until a later scene. And then oh, that's not what was going on back then. I think the same thing applies to Hal and of course, that hinges on the question, does Hal possess 
consciousness. Or mm -hmm. is he just a very good facsimile of human consciousness? I find that intriguing. He does seem more human at times. Mm -hmm. Not always. But especially before the crisis occurs. Then I think uh, I think Dave Bowman does appear very human. He's, he's, yeah. Everybody has to suppress it. He's afraid, but he has to suppress it because he has to, you know, try to recover Frank uh, from space, and he has to try to get back into the spaceship, and he has to try to dismantle Hal. So he has to maintain his composure, which is another thing I think a lot of people overlook who think that Kubrick is just one you know, uh, long line of, of cynicism in his films. That's all he presents. Um, I think Dave is a remarkable character. Once Hal is terminated, Bowman is stunned by the sudden appearance of a video message, which outlines the true nature of his mission to Jupiter. This is a pre-recorded briefing made prior to your departure, and which for security reasons of the highest importance has been known on board during the mission only by your HAL 9000 computer. Now that you are in Jupiter's space and the entire crew is revived, it can be told to you. 18 months ago, the first evidence of intelligent life off the Earth was discovered. It was buried 40 feet below the lunar surface, near the crater, Tycho. Except for a single, very powerful radio emission aimed at Jupiter, the four million year old black monolith has remained completely inert. Its origin and purpose still a total mystery. Film critic Robert Castle. And the film takes a, a really dramatic turn at that point in terms of uh, leaving the realism in a way uh, when he terminates Hal. It's like he's leaving behind a theme. This is a sort of a Nietzschean, I think, uh, view, going on to a new type of human being. That's where mm -hmm. I see the Nietzschean connection. Bravely, Bowman boards a pod and leaves the craft to start his mission. It is then that we see the black monolith float through space, and once aligned with a series of moons, it sends Bowman's pod through a wormhole of brilliantly colored landscapes, visuals that are gorgeously rendered by effects artist Douglas Trumbull. Suddenly, a noticeably aged Bowman finds himself in a meticulously designed bedroom fashioned in the style of Louis XVI. Looking into the next room, he notices someone sitting at a table eating. This is an older version of himself. As this bowman reaches for a glass of wine and sends it crashing to the floor, he notices an even older version of himself, incapacitated in bed. Near death, this bowman motions forward, arms raised towards the foot of the bed, where the black monolith rests before him. It is then that Bowman undergoes his final transformation as the Star Child. Encased in a fetal sack, the Bowman fetus floats through space and gazes to nearby Earth in wide-eyed wonder.
author Peter Kramer. The ending, I think, uh, has an ongoing relevance for how we see uh, the function of cinema and the place of humanity in the universe. And for me, that is quite crucial because I think today uh, we are more uh, than ever at, at, a, at a sort of turning point. You know, for Kubrick, the turning point was the Cuban Missile Crisis. For him, that was the point at which humanity almost self-destructed, and and he made a film which 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 played the, out that scenario from the Cuban Missile Crisis from October '62. The the uh, the, the film that plays out that scenario, and he needs to counter that, and he comes up with this this beautiful and 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 moving vision uh, of the Star Child at the end, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and this mysterious vision of the monolith who facilitates the birth of the, of the Star Child. And once again, I think we need a vision of the future, which is hopeful, yes. rather than defeatist uh, and uh, and negative. Author Randy Rasmussen. 2001, uh, of course, does end up on a pretty positive note, uh, but it's a very vague note. I believe in the novel, uh, the star child destroys the uh, nuclear weapons orbiting Earth. You I don't, think you're right. Kubrick doesn't give you that. I, I think it's telling that he dismantles Hal, and and then he goes on his journey, and he reaches a a higher level of he evolves into a higher level of consciousness, in a way. And I'm wondering how this speaks to certain themes that obsess Kubrick throughout his career, because he there seems to be a common thread of a general distrust of of power. In his films, uh, and 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 perhaps that translates into a into a distrust of technology in 2001, as if he's saying, "Yes, we're we're very evolved. Look at the amazing technology and the amazing intellect that went into creating it, but at what cost if it strips us of our humanity?" I mean, do you see that in 2001? I, I think that's very difficult because uh, if you look at the production process itself. There's a lot of um, discussion going on about how one might explain Hal's behavior. And also, I think there's a lot of attempts to try to understand the astronauts. I think it's actually misleading to think about the astronauts as being somehow deadened or anything like that. Mm. Um, I think there's something about what it might mean to survive in space, you know, for months on end with one other person in fairly limited space. You know, surely you would have to have your your emotions under absolute control in order to survive in that kind of environment. Uh, And there's a wonderfully uh, expressive moment in the film when uh, uh, David Bowman wants to get back into the ship and Hal denies him entry. And David Bowman is really upset. You you can see it, but he has to keep it all in. So, So I think there's something extraordinarily emotional about the characters in the film. And as far as technology itself is concerned, since the monolith needs to be understood, if it's not you know, divine intervention, it needs to be understood as a technology. Mm. So if there's any hope at all, uh, it is technology. So for me, there isn't an opposition between humanity and technology, but rather there is a question of what kind of technology and what do we do with it, and to what purpose do we use it. And the question ultimately is, of course, uh, how does... I mean, for me, the ending of the film is quite extraordinary in the contrast to the uh, first appearance of the monolith and how it inspires Moonwatcher, the, the, the man-ape, the hominid, who, who discovers the use of phones as tools and in particular as weapons. Uh-huh. Uh, that's a very powerful moment there where the ambiguity of human, human progress, of course, is brought into focus that, yes, the, to- the use of tools, the sophisticated use of tools distinguishes humans from uh, other animals, but at the same time, of course, it is, in the film at least, immediately used to murder, mm-hmm. it's a Cain, Cain and Abel type situation. Um, so it's, there's a huge tension there between uh, tools as something which elevates humanity and tools which are used for murderous purposes. And the end of the film, of course, when Thus takes Zarathustra, the, the music played over this, this crucial moment, when, when man apes become human, as it were, through the discovery of tools and through the discovery of murder, uh, when they become human, uh, the contrast at the end of the film, when the music returns, is that now the, the, the monolith facilitates a return home. 
Mm-hmm. I thought that, that was for me the most touching moment in the whole film. Once I thought about it, I mean, I've seen the film 20 times, and you know, you see something else every time you watch it. But for me, it was quite touching to say that at the end, this triumphant music is, is not about elevating uh, people, it's not about murder, it's not about tools, it's about returning home. Mm. Uh, so the star child at the end of the film returns to Earth, and then of course turns towards the camera and returns to us in the auditorium. Um, so loneliness, human loneliness is overcome. We are there for each other, as it were. That seems to me is quite crucial in, in this particular film. For audiences that desperately craved some sense of connection, and an experience that offered transcendence from the troubled environment of the late 60s, 2001 proved to be the ideal tonic. Still, the progressive structure of the film, and its enigmatic quality, were difficult to stomach for some members of the establishment. Critic Robert Castle. You have to sort of embrace the movie's own terms, and, and I think this is what Kubrick was about in his his movies, uh, and that's why I think, especially starting with 2001, there begins a divide between the critics of Kubrick's work, people who who loved his previous work, suddenly sort of drift away, not all of them, but many major ones, because I think they can't, they refuse to sort of uh, go inside the movies. Um, mm-hmm. They're repelled by the what they consider the formalities. I think it's, it's, it's somewhat frustrating to read reviews of the movies. And the other thing is I think Kubrick's always ahead of the critics. Professor R. Barton Palmer. There was story and narrative and excitement and events and where it all didn't seem really to add up to anything. It seemed, in fact, deliberately to avoid adding up to anything. And Mm -hmm. uh, that was a striking cultural moment. There was a huge reaction against that film. Pauline Kael fulminated against it. She was, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with her, but she was was sort of... A uh, more educated version of the Hollywood movie fan, and uh, she resented the European art cinema, and mm-hmm. she thought she thought uh, 2001 was just an appalling film. She, she said it was. That. She went as far as to say it was it was a, a terribly amateur. <laughs> yes, right. And she said only reason that people are going to see it is because hippies think they can get somehow turned on or get a high from watching the succession of images at the end. She yeah, has a yeah. bitter, bitter review of it. Yeah, I think that's that's how many people within that particular niche of film culture, so sort of uh, more sophisticated viewers who are really fans of Hollywood as opposed to the European art cinema, they were shocked by 2001. Kubrick's longtime assistant, Tony Fruin. Do, do you, did, he never discussed meaning in his films with you or, or anyone, did he? No, no he didn't. I, I mean, uh, and uh, I think that's very much uh, to his credit. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I mean, I mean you know, any work of art is, is, uh, is open to um, multiple interpretations. I mean, there isn't one that's one and correct. If you look at any art form, you go back to uh, any art form throughout our history, mm-hmm. a true artist is uh, delivering a layered project that will continually speak to ongoing generations. And that allows... Uh, yeah, Stanley's films have become such classics because they contain that element. Robert Watts began his career as a production manager on 2001. He would go on to produce the Indiana Jones and the Star Wars films, the latter of which was deeply inspired by Kubrick's epic. He was absolutely meticulous in everything that he did. For example, as we're, we're doing 2001 right, we've got uh, people working with us as technical advisors out of Huntsville, Alabama, uh, guys who worked with Werner von Braun and all the post-Second World War space programming. We've got these people here as technical advisors. He could absorb the projects to the level that he would question them, mm. their responses. 
you know, he'd have the expert standing there, but occasionally he'd somehow have acquired something that the expert hadn't. But for me, I mean, working with him, you know, we used to sit down and uh, most weekends before we started shooting, Saturday and Sunday when the normal work isn't going on, we would sit in the dining room up at uh, the old MGM Studios north of London in Boreham Wood, just up the road from where I did the Star Wars and Indiana Jones somewhat later in my career. Mm -hmm. um, we would sit there and go through the script. And I don't know what anybody else has told you, but Stanley was one of the funniest guys. You know, we'd sit there. And, I mean, bear in mind, we're working at the weekend, Saturday and Sunday. <laughs> Stanley was the kind of guy, you know, who would always work seven days a week. He's the only person I know that has made business calls to people's homes on actually Christmas Day. <laughs> He's like that. Yeah. You know, very focused. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, Christ, 2001, you know, we have here in, uh, you know, Christmas, we have Christmas Day. And the day after is also a public holiday, the 26th here. Mm. That just happens to be an old tradition from back in the Victorian era, right? Mm -hmm. The day we started shooting 2001 was the 27th of December, mm. 1965. Can you imagine a worse day to start shooting <laughs> immediately after a long public holiday? Yeah. I mean, your last minute things that you're normally doing because you're starting shooting tomorrow or Monday are like advanced considerably because you've got to do it before all the Christmas holiday starts. And that's the moment Stanley picked to start. <laughs> but he was great. I mean, I tell you, he is one of the funniest guys at sitting at those meetings. I kind of sometimes get the impression that people see him as some kind of tortured genius. Mm -hmm. No, I don't think so. I think he was just a really good filmmaker who understood the genre in which he worked, absorbed himself in story, which he was capable of doing, and, as I said to you earlier, became uh, more knowledgeable than the technical advisor. But on 2001, we set off on that movie, and we, 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 we began shooting, as I say, the day after the Christmas holiday, and we round on through, and everything went absolutely perfectly. We were bang on schedule through a series of sets. And then we arrived on the centrifuge set that we had um, uh, on stage three at the old MGM studio. It was the biggest sound stage in uh, Europe at that time. There we built this centrifuge, which was highly complex. Nobody had ever attempted anything like it in the history of movies. Mm. It's a piece of hardware. This thing actually went round, and it had slip rings with all the electrics, everything that was fed into it had to go through slip rings because you couldn't have cable. And it was the most amazing piece of engineering. It went to right to the roof of the stage, hmm. and we had to have a way where we could slot the camera in, and nobody could look through the camera because... It was, it was, you know, the guys, uh, uh, Keir Dulea, Gary Lott with a ruddy rally, a couple of, uh, hamsters in a, in a wheel. Right. And the cameras through a slot. And it was the first time ever, well, certainly in my experience, that we had uh, a video interlock with it. And it was strapped to the side of the television camera, so there were obviously parallax problems. And outside, we could sit and watch on this really bad black and white screen. We had no means of recording it. Mm. We watched it, and that was it. And it was an amazing advance. I'd never seen it. Nowadays, you know, every movie you make, there's video assist. Mm -hmm. But it was the first. It was a breakthrough. And everything Stanley did was, you know, right on the cutting edge technologically, because there are a lot of technological things on 2001. For example, the entire movie was original negative. There wasn't a single dupe where the optical process that existed at the time in that film. I mean, it was it was technical breakthrough. It was done in a way that nobody ever attempted to do a movie like that mm -hmm. before. Mm -hmm. The first camera day to the last camera day was two years and three months. And I'm talking about filming. I'm not talking about pre-production and post-production. 
Oh. You know, his method of directing was that he directed everything from the actors down to the last nail that was driven in the set. I've never known a person <laughs> who had such attention to detail. Mm-hmm. Directors, you know, do their thing because they're mainly, they're, they're telling the story and we're all there to help them tell the story. That's all we were there for. And it's coming through the actors in the moment. But I'll say it was Stanley, it was coming out of every slip ring on that fucking centrifuge. <laughs> what happened though with Stanley was, we were bang on schedule, right? We arrive on the centrifuge, and we are scheduled on it for ten days. And all the TV screens and the rest of it, the back projections, 16mm projections, and this whole shooting batch is going round and round like a giant ferris wheel. And we go on it 10 days. You know how long we were on it? Mm-mm. 10 weeks. Oh. At that point, the schedule fell apart. <laughs> All I can tell you is, because I'd never experienced anything quite like it before in my life was, we arrived at a point where it seemed to become irrelevant. It was going to take as long as it was going to take. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the the unveiling of the final film, and when you first saw it, what what surprised you about it, having been so intimately involved in the production of it? The first time I saw it, funny enough, was in New York. Mm-hmm. I saw it at uh, Phelps, which was a 70-mil theater, and it was perfect. Mm-hmm. And it just opened, God knows, I can't remember what I was doing, but I was in New York for some reason. That's where I first saw it. And I watched the movie, and it, you know, it was the first week that it was playing. I remember at the end of it, I was sitting all on my own in the theatre because I was there, you know, some, I, don't, I can't remember why, why I was there, but I remember after it, was, there was a guy sitting next to me. Oh, no, my brother was with me. There were two. There was a guy sitting next to me and said, God Almighty, do you know what that was all about? <laughs> and I said to him, yes, I do, actually. Because when we did the whole thing, there was a whole lot of uh, voiceover in the script that explained why everything was happening, hmm. which uh, Stanley chose to ignore. Actor Dan Richter portrayed the immortal role of Moonwatcher in 2001's Dawn of Man sequence. I was in London at the time, and I was um, I was not performing that much. I was teaching at that point, and I was teaching my I was teaching a professional uh, mind for, for professional actors, and um, was doing some uh, uh, small performances. But my focus at that point is I had uh, been developing a, a, a bunch of new ideas about um, mimetic movement, and I was, I was teaching to try to. Uh, understand how it how I how I could pass it on to other performers, and um, I had been I had been one of the producers of a very large poetry reading at the Albert Hall in London, mm-hmm. with Allen Ginsberg and uh, uh, you know a bunch of major uh, uh, beat poets, and one of the other producers was close friends with a fellow named Mike Wilson who. Um, had done some books on skin diving with Arthur Clark, and Arthur had told Mike that he and Stanley were um, didn't really know how to prog- progress with the opening of of the picture, and they were they would thought they would be great to talk to a mime, and and Mike told um, my friend John Eason, and Johnny said, well, gee, I know a mime. His name is Dan Richter, and so that's how I was brought together, and and uh, was approached by uh, Stanley's people, and they said. Uh, uh, you know, Mr. Kubrick would like to um, to talk to you about how a mime might solve uh, some problems he has uh, with um, his picture he's shooting, and would you do that? And I I said sure. I know who he is. Boy, that's, I was impressed. I was excited. <laughs> you know, I wasn't looking for a job uh, uh, because at that point I was uh, I was I was very busy with what I was doing, and I had never thought of myself as a a film actor. But I thought, boy, I'd love to talk to Stanley Kubrick. That would be exciting. And I and I went out and met with Stanley, and we hit it off immediately. And he he effectively uh, proposed that I come work with him almost immediately. I went out to see them, I guess, in um, oh, 
must have been about September, October of 67, and they had already started shooting around Christmas of 65, so all of the live action had been shot. Everything, mm. uh, the, you know, Kirtley and Gary Lockwood had already left, and um, but they had not been able to shoot this opening sequence, which they had a full script for, but they had not been able to shoot it. Sets had been built. Uh, they had done numerous tests on all different kinds of, you know, uh, dancers and actors and stunt people, and um, uh, it was an amazing array of, of, of people had come through that Stanley had had done tests on. And fairly large sets had been built that he had just rejected. He just, he just, nothing was right in his point of view. And you, and, and and Stanley was like that. He he never, never settled for anything unless it was it, that he felt he had he had gotten the right right thing. So, it was really late in the day. And um, when he pulled me in and he said, "Well, we've got to shoot this in in six weeks or ten weeks, something like that, and down in down in Spain." And um, can you do this? Can you get involved in this? And I said, well, I can do it, but Stanley, I, I don't think we're going to shoot in Spain in 10 weeks. I, this is very technically very difficult to do and will take a lot of uh, uh, work to develop the costumes and uh, to train the, to find the people and train the people. I think it's more like 10 months, not 10 weeks. And, and nor do I think we'll end up shooting outdoors. I think we'll end up shooting on a set so that you can have more control because it's, it's going to be technically very difficult mm -hmm. and um i think most directors would have told me to take a hike at that point but uh stanley it, it suddenly it, i could see that he could say wow this guy this guy's into something here well this is interesting you know, <laughs> the idea of, of more work more detailed work and doing a, a, a you know a more complex and thorough job really appealed to him so he said okay let's give it a try you know actors have have complained that he wouldn't tell them what to do and um you know traditional traditional actors and the the thing about stanley is that he might have done a year a year and a half in preparation and detailed meticulous preparation for a scene but the moment the camera started turning and he could start see he could see what was going on in the frame he was ready for whatever happened and he was prepared to change and evolve and um he expected the actors to bring to it he didn't. He didn't want to tell the actors what to do. He wanted the actors to to bring their creativity to it, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, the, the you know he often you know as people say, oh, he did so many takes. Well, we would do many takes, but each take became, quite often was different. It wasn't we were trying to get it the exact way he wanted it to start with. It was that we discovered things as the takes went on. And the scene actually, the shot would actually evolve, you know, over the takes. So the final takes might be quite different than the original ones, rather than a, a simply a fine tuning of the original ones or getting the original ones right, uh, because it was a battle to get them. What were what were some of those the the scenes or characteristics of those characters that came across that that were not necessarily on the page that came through because of that process? Well. Um, I guess the most famous thing is everybody talks about you know the great cut where the uh, you know yeah. I throw the bone in the air and there's it, it cuts to the um, the satellite you know bombs uh, one of the satellite bombs um, uh, you know in orbit around the Earth uh, three or four million years later now that's not in the, that wasn't in the script. That that transition wasn't in the script. That wasn't in the script. Okay. Wow. And, and now, and so what is the genesis of it? You go back. And there's the you have the scene where um, you know we've seen the the obelisk. The the apes have been exposed to the obelisk, and 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 then the next morning, I get up and I go out and I get the idea to pick up a bone and start killing things. In that scene. I wanted to, you know, Stanley, I looked down, Stanley had, was using Nikon lenses, and I could see this, he was using a portrait lens, so I knew I was going to be really big in the frame, you know. And I, I, th I was thinking to myself, well, I want to keep all the movements small, you know, because I don't want to take away, I want, I want, I want it because the, the key for me is going to, I'm going to tilt my head slightly to the side mm -hmm. to show that I'm getting an idea. And so that's what I was focusing on. 
and 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 Stanley uh, and and we hadn't really discussed what I was going to do. So I, I knew I was going to pick up a bone, and rather than just pick up the bone and whack the skull, I was going to sort of you know feel it, you know examine it because this is I've never picked anything up before. You know, this is the mm-hmm. first time I've ever done anything like this, so it's new. I don't even know how to hold a bone, you know, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, okay, I start going forward again. I reach down and pick up the bone, sort of play, play with it a little bit, handle it, and I tentatively hit hit a few bo- things on the ground, the bones on the ground, and one of the bones flips up in the air, you know, because mm. it, the, they're they're they're, you know, the, the way they're shaped. You hit one end, and the other end will pop. It'll, it'll make it pop up in the air. And mm-hmm. I said, "Oh, I'm sorry, Stanley." And he said, "No, no, that's good. Leave it, leave it, leave it." You know. So I finished the take, and I crashed the skull and everything. And he said afterwards, he said, "Boy," I said, "Oh, I'm sorry about that bone." He said, "No, no, that's." He said, "I liked it. I liked it. It really worked." So we said, "Okay." He said, "Now this time, hit hit the bone on purpose on that little end, so it'll pop up." And so we did another take, and it worked again. And said. So, great. Well, that was great. Let's do it. So then we started putting the bones all over. Exactly. <laughs> so I do it. So now when I'm hitting, the bones are popping all over the place, you know, and then up and I crash the thing, and and uh, great. So now that one little thing started it going. Next thing is the um, the one of the tapirs was running around the uh, the set, and the set was raised up. The set had to be able to rotate. So it was raised off the ground. Some places, six to twelve feet off the ground. Tapirs had flown off and had broken his neck, and it was dead. So we had this dead tapir, which Stanley immediately had them throw in the freezer <laughs> so we could use it, you know. And so we, you know, he, he did the shot of dropping the tapir, dropping, you know, when I when I, I whack the uh, when I whack the skull, and uh, so now that extended that a little bit. Now we've we've went on and finished shooting with all the the guys over the next week or two, but then when it was done, when it was when it was, we thought we had wrapped. Stanley said, "Okay, now what we've got to do? We've got to take this. You breaking the bones, and we got to take that further." He says, "I, I want to see the clouds in the sky above you, you know, because we were yeah. shooting everything inside. So, so we built a platform outside and." I went out and started doing smashing the things out there and and whatnot and getting the low angle shot and um, and at, at at this point he's saying no 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 you know when you throw the bone in the air we've got to do we've got to slow it down you know so okay now we're trying to find cameras uh, uh, high high speed motors for the camera to move this 65 millimeter film through faster and of course the film is tearing you know we crank the motor up the film is tearing in the gate and whatnot and. And um, we stopped, and we stayed to stop for a week or two, and we did research on high-speed cameras. I went off, and I was looking at these cameras, that that uh, big rotating prism cameras, and, well, we could do that, but it doesn't look right. And then we got some, some motors came in from uh, from L.A. that were able to get the film a bit faster. And then I came up with the idea of, well, I'll just mime, I'll slow down my movements, and you can speed, you speed the camera up to get the slow motion, and maybe we can get the speed you want, and... So finally we got to that, and we're we're doing that. Now Arthur turns up, Arthur Clark turns up, and he and Stanley are talking, and Stanley is and, and Arthur are walking after one day of shooting, are walking back to his um, his office, and Stanley picks up a broomstick as they're talking and starts swinging it like you know, the bone in my hand, and suddenly mm-hmm. he throws it in the air and he watches it spin, and he grabs it again, throws it, and watches it spin, and he says to Arthur, you know. That's it. But look, Jamie, this all started three or four weeks before with that little, that me hitting that bone just in a little way so it moved a little more than I thought it should. Robert Watts and Dan Richter have both played a role in shaping a film that has reached mythic status. But what is it about the film that continues to seduce and mystify us so many years later? Critic Keith Ulick something that is out of time you know that that's the thing it's a movie that's out of time and I don't know how you uh, how you accomplish that except to have some kind of faith some kind of belief some kind of you know absolute innate artistry that is indefinable the 2001 influence can be felt in many of the seminal films from the past 50 years perhaps most notably 
and George Lucas's game-changing Star Wars franchise. Star Wars producer Robert Watts. Let's put it this way. Um, when we first came together, those of us, you know, had the first on the design and myself, yeah, we were just beginning on Star Wars. George said, right, I want to show you, uh, it was four films he showed us. And he says, I want elements of all these, these four films in this, you know, somehow in this. It was giving us an idea about, uh, a world of science fiction where things leaked oil that didn't always work. It's not normal in the way it was before. Mm-hmm. So the four films he showed us, first one was 2001. Mm-hmm. And because obviously he was highly influenced by that. He, he very much he did influence Star Wars. So, you know, there, there, there are powers. So George shows us four movies. 2001 was one of them. The other one was a, a movie called Silent Running. Mm-hmm which I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with, most science fiction film. Oh, yeah. Then he showed us two other films that were completely non-science fiction. Once was, one was uh, Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West, and the other was uh, Federico Fellini's Satyricum. Hmm. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with those films, but if you went and looked at those four films, you'll see the elements of them in the whole, all of Star Wars. Yeah. So... Yes, of course they were influenced by it, my God. The legacy of 2001 also spawned additional sequel novels from Clark. The first film sequel to 2001, titled 2010, The Year We Make Contact, was realized in 1984 by director Peter Himes, who requested Kubrick's approval prior to embarking on his own space odyssey. When when MGM asked me to do 2010, they gave me the book. I read the book, and I said I will do it under two conditions. One, Stanley Kubrick has to approve me. And two, I, I want to change, I want to make changes uh, in the story uh, because I want to make it political. I want mm-hmm. to make it about Russian America, Russians and Americans not getting along and what happens. Um, and that has to be approved by Arthur Clarke. We arranged a phone call between myself and Stanley, and I was sitting in my office at MGM, and I said, it's Stanley Kubrick. And I remember literally standing up. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. I stood up. And um, the, the thing about Stanley Kubrick is he just didn't sound like Stanley Kubrick. He was incredibly mm-hmm. warm, had this New York accent. I'm from New York. Um, he was utterly disarming. Um, very gentle, very patient, very kind, except immediately said, that, you know, when you made that movie, uh, I had made a film called Outland with Sean Connery, and he said, when you made that, mm-hmm. that shot you made, and he started, he st- immediately started to question me about technical aspects. And he had had problems being admitted into the union in England as a cinematographer, so he was never really recognized for himself being a cinematographer. Um, and I, after a fairly long and bitter struggle, had been admitted in America into the IA as a cinematographer. So he was questioning, you know, all, all about that. We began to talk about lenses and film stocks and cameras and camera movements and stuff. And um, we spoke probably for two hours. And probably because mm-hmm. my legs were tired. Um, I said, Look, we got to get something out of the way here. Um, do you, is it okay with you if I'm the one who writes and directs this movie? He said, "Oh yeah, of course. Just the one thing you have to do is just don't be scared. Just make your own goddamn movie. Mm-hmm. Don't worry." And then we went on, and the phone call was over, and and. Uh, My assistant, the guy who was working with me, came in to my office and said, what was it like? And I was kind of slumped in my chair, kind of dazed. I'd actually spoken with, you know, with a deity. And uh, he said, what was it like? I said, well, we talked for two and a half hours. I told him everything, and he told me nothing. Mm. Um, a couple of months later, I was sitting with Arthur Clark and, 
I said, Arthur, what was it like the first time you had a conversation with Stanley Kubrick? He said, well, it's really interesting. We, we, we were outside and we sat on a bench. We talked for about two and a half hours. I told him everything and he told me nothing. <laughs> he he was endlessly inquisitive. I mean, Unbelievable. That, that's, yeah, you know, yeah. and 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 he was so acute. Mm-hmm. You know, he was just so acute. Except the surprising thing to me about him, and he, you know, I, I did sort of didn't know him well. Um, however, we had many hours on the phone during during the process of the making of the film the writing of the film and the making of the film. And in each instance, he was extremely warm. He was simply, he was simply very, very nice. Uh, and, and you know, I had this kind of Wizard of Oz complex about Stanley Kubrick, believing that he was, among other things, the smartest person making movies that ever lived. And, uh, you know... It, Olympian in his talent, mm-hmm. and he just kind so, of wanted to get that out of the way, and, and and so he could just talk to you and just make you feel better. Yeah, so he's actually really sweet. So when you when you had further communications with him during the production, mm-hmm. did you reach out to him? Did you have questions? Sure, lots of questions yeah. about design, about what that meant, what this meant. Quite often, sometimes he was very elliptical. And sometimes he was very specific. Sometimes he went, oh, man, I don't remember. 2001 has lost none of its power to inspire the imagination and provoke discussion. It is certainly the giant of the science fiction genre, with which every filmmaker since must grapple. But beyond the jaw-dropping special effects, the innovative and unforgettable use of classical music in place of traditional score and the allure of worlds outside our own. 2001 is timeless because it forces us to ask questions. Questions that will continue to preoccupy us for as long as there is a mankind. When you consider the film's portrayal of the nature of violence in man, the innate power of the human mind, and the possibility of a rebirth, perhaps the most pressing question the film asks is this. As the human species continues to evolve, will we ever reach a higher level of consciousness? Or are we doomed to wallow in our own self-created culture of rapidly escalating ultraviolence?